Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity of a new building, and, and certainly we thank you for this place that you've given us. And even as we, uh, many of us walked in and it was pouring rain, Lord, to, to be able to come into a place and it's, uh, it's warmer, it's comfortable, it's dry, uh, so that we can sit and we can listen. And Lord, we know that you have a word for us as a, as a body of believers. Certainly you're going to speak to us each individually, uh, but at the same time you do a work within a congregation of believers. And so Lord, we pray you would minister to us uh, in that way and you would draw our hearts uh, closer to one another. Lord, you'd bless our fellowship, uh, even just by sitting next to each other and hearing the same things and having the same Holy Spirit work on each of our hearts. Lord, we do pray that you would knit our hearts together, you'd bless our fellowship with each other, you'd prepare us for uh, the ministry you have for us outside of these walls, Uh, and we ask that in your name, Uh, amen. Well, we left off in verse 10 of chapter 16, and actually the first five or six verses of where we left off, they all tend to talk about kings or rulers, and now we don't have kings in our nation. There are still some kings uh, in the world, or they go by different names, but they act as your traditional king, and so it's interesting to see five or six verses in a row that speaks uh, about an earthly ruler, an earthly king, and so I'm going to read those together. Typically, we take one verse at a time, but I'm going to read those uh, verses together. Starting in verse 10, it says, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he who loves him speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. And in verse 15, in the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that spring that bring spring rain. Now, more often than not, there's that old adage which comes out to be true, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's almost always abundantly present in a system of government, particularly in a government that the the complete control is in the hands of one individual uh, as a whole. And so as we read this passage here about kings, there's an ideal that is being put forward. Typical kings don't measure up to this. And from time to time, you're going to find an earthly king or an earthly ruler or an earthly system of government where those kings, those rulers, those monarchs do measure up to the things that were placed in those particular verses there. But ultimately, this is pointing to the greatest king of kings, isn't it? It's ultimately pointing to Jesus who will come and rule and reign here on the earth and hopefully is ruling and reigning in each of our hearts right now. But with that in mind, we'll look at this and see the wisdom that we can glean. Now, I don't suspect any of us here are going to go on and become kings. Some of us might go on to become elected officials. More likely, our position of power, so to speak, will be in our home. It'll be in our place of business. Maybe we run a business of some sort or we're a manager or something in our place of business. So I think there are things that we can take from this and we can look at it, even though we're probably never going to go on to become a king. But ultimately, the picture here is of the ideal king, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, who becomes the grand pattern of all earthly rulers. And I will say this, and I think Solomon does, the measure to which an earthly ruler imitates Christ is the measure to which they will have success in what it is 
that they are doing. And so with that, let's take a look. The first verse is verse 10. It says, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. Now, an earthly leader, king, should read this in two ways. They should see it as a precept, as a command, that they should not sin in, with, their, with their mouth. And they should see it also as a promise. And so it's a precept for an earthly king to establish, you know what, I'm not going to sin with my mouth. But it's also a promise that an oracle is on the lips of a king and he will not then sin in judgment. Romans chapter 13 tells us about rulers, that they are God's servants. That God puts those people in place for our benefit. And so if you look at, let me read that to you. It says this in Romans 13, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct, right? Generally speaking, they don't come chasing you down to give you awards that you've done well. They come chasing you down when you are doing poorly or bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Yes. Then do what is good. Think about it. Driving your car. The alarms, the fire police things go off. If you're driving 55, you're just like, hey, buddy, you know, as he or she goes by here. But if you're speeding, you get all worried about that. If you would have no fear for the one who is in authority, stop speeding, Kendra. All right, (laughs) continuing on here. It says, then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is, that is the government, he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, of course, there are those that come along that are poor rulers. There are those that have come along that are corrupt. Those, there, there are those that abuse their power. But generally speaking, the purpose of the government or the family or the systems that are put in place in our society, those things are to maintain order and balance in society. And they're designed to accomplish that particular purpose. So here we have now this proverb. And what we learn is because the king is a representative sent to accomplish God's purposes, a truly wise king is going to take care not to transgress with his mouth and not to sin in his judgment. They're going to recognize the place they have that they were put in power by God to accomplish his purposes of maintaining order in society. And they're not going to take that position or that role lightly in any way. And so they won't transgress with their mouth. They're not going to sin in their judgment. I think in our day we can add, nor will they transgress with their Twitter fingers either. And some, unfortunately, folks do do that. It's a high calling to rule over other people. And a king or a president or a governor or a business owner or a manager in a place of business, they have to recognize it as such that it's a high calling to be placed in this particular place, and thus approach their rule with great care and prudence because of the impact that they can have on other people. And so Solomon tells us that. Secondly, notice in verse 11, he doesn't mention king specifically, but once again, he is addressing this need for honesty and integrity and justice in a well-functioning society. A society that is not based on or does not at least push for honesty and integrity and justice is a society that's going to have strife. Correct? We would agree. And so here it says this, a just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. And so again, this push for justice and a just scale and honesty and integrity in our dealings with one another. And here what we see is that there are decisions and actions that God can bless And there are decisions and actions that God cannot bless. 
And if you want God to bless your business or you want God to bless your society and then there's all forms of injustice or cheating or trying to manipulate other people or take advantage of other people, don't expect God to bless that. He tells us what he's going to bless and he tells us what he cannot bless. And you can't expect God to bless your efforts if you will not honor him in his ways. Amen? All right, verse 11. Verse 12 says this, It is an abomination for kings to do evil, or actually it says it is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Now the reason why I went back and made sure I corrected myself is because as it's worded, it's an abomination to kings. There's a little uncertainty as if what it is saying is it is abomination to kings when their subjects do evil, or if it's saying it's an abomination to kings when they do evil. And so it could go either direction. Certainly no king is going to appreciate it if his subjects or her subjects, if she's a queen or any ruler, if their subjects are going to be uh, doing whatever they want to do, evil. Because if that is the case, then anarchy is going to prevail in that particular society. And I've never been a king. I don't think anyone here has ever been a king. But I think we can say with utmost confidence that kings are not fans of anarchy. And so, thus, it is an abomination to kings for evil to be done in their kingdom by their subjects, for the throne is established by righteousness. So that's one way that you could interpret this particular verse. I think the second way that you can interpret, and I think the context seems to indicate that this is where Solomon is going, uh, but that may or may not be the case. The second way is that it's an abominable thing for a king to do evil. That's an abominable thing for him himself or her herself to do that. And now certainly we know it's an abomination when anyone does evil, that that's detestable to the Lord. But a truly good king, and because a king has so much power, that's why it's being mentioned here as being an abomination to that particular person. A truly good king not only acts justly, but desires to act justly. A truly good king, it comes from within. And to do otherwise for that individual would be an abomination. And so despite in many cases having the complete power to do whatever they want to do, if you're in some absolute monarchy somewhere where the king can do whatever they want to do or in a dictatorship somewhere, despite that, this individual that is seeking to walk in wisdom, their inner man is going to restrain them from doing whatever it is they want to do. They have the authority, they have the power, they can do whatever they want, but their inner man restrains them. Their desire for righteousness keeps them walking on the path of wisdom. Now, one might think that power and force would be the only means of establishing a person's rule. One might think that. I just have to have a heavy hand. People need to know. It's going to be my way or the highway and things like that. But notice what Solomon says there in verse verse 12. He says, for the throne is established by righteousness. So one might think I got to come in strong and hard and I got to beat down anyone that tries to rise up against me. But what Solomon says here is that the throne is established by righteousness. So it's the individual that is ever aware of using their power properly that will find that to be the best means of establishing their power or their government. Make sense? Do we all agree with that? Yeah, we, we should. But think about when you're like running your own business or, you know, you're the manager at your place of work. What do you want to do sometimes? You want to slam down the hammer. I don't want any questions. I don't want to debate with anyone. I'm not telling anyone, etc. So the best means of establishing their government is not causing people to be fearful of you, 
but it's ruling with righteousness, and then people will voluntarily submit to you, submit to you. Verse 13 says, righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he who loves him who speaks, let me rephrase it, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A truly good ruler with character and wisdom isn't going to merely assemble around them yes men and women. Not merely going to bring around them those that will flatter them or stroke their ego. ego. Good, good kings don't merely seek to be flattered. Nor do they really feel that they need to be. I'm in power. I'm comfortable with being in power. I'm not afraid I'm going to lose my power. I don't need people just to say things to make me feel good about my power. I need counselors in my life to speak truth in my life. And a truly good king is going to be look at, looking for that. They're going to want counselors and advisors whose word is trustworthy and true they're frank, they're sincere, even if sometimes it's painful for them to hear. And so they will assemble those individuals around them. Now verses 14 and 15 sort of go together, and this demonstrates the power of kings, particularly those in places where there are power, their power is allowed to go unchecked. And so we don't have kings in our nation, but we, we have took the power, if it was all in one little spot here, and we have diversified it and we've spread it out. And so there's governors here and there's senators here and a Congress and Supreme Court and all that kind of stuff. But we have uh, separated that power out. It's not all in the hands of one people. That's, I'm just going to have a little history fun with you, okay? Because I find it interesting. That idea, you know it, you've been to sixth grade history. That's called the systems of checks and balances. There was a fellow by the name of Montesquieu uh, who was an Enlightenment thinker. And he put forward, you have to have, he's not the only guy, John Locke and others, you have to have a, systems, a system of checks and balances because as we said earlier, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And his reasoning was this, he says, because whenever you put all the power in the hands of one, evil men are apt to abuse that power. Now here's Montague's thinking though. His thinking wasn't like, well, this guy's evil. He's okay, so it's all right in that case. His thinking was, all of us are evil. We're all sinful. And we will all abuse that power. I found it interesting. I was reading about Montesquieu recently, and modern-day historians are saying, well, he, he tended to take sort of a, a gloomy view of humanity and that we were prone toward, uh, toward wickedness and, and things like that. That's not a gloomy view of humanity. That's the right view of humanity. And so anyway, that's why we have separated the power here. So here now in these next couple of verses, it tells us with all that power, if a king's power is allowed to go unchecked, you're going to see things like this. So if you look at verse 14, a king's wrath is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. King has absolute power. You make him mad, you're probably going to die. The wise individual will tread carefully around that king. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face there is life, and in his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. We studied not too long ago the book of Esther, and you remember Esther was the wife of the king, but there was still a rule in that society that nobody could appear before the king unless they were summoned by the king. Well, Esther had to go before the king. She had to get this message to the king. And so she sort of swallows her fear. It says in, in Esther chapter 4, uh, she tells her friends, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf, because I want to go in and say hi to my husband. Hold a fast on my behalf that it would go well. Don't eat, don't drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast also. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law for me to do so. And if I die, I die. She says, imagine that. But that was the power that this particular king had that nobody could just come in, summon. So imagine, here's this verse. 
if, you, if you're not familiar with the story in Esther, it says the king sees her there and he sort of extends his scepter, which means she's not going to die that day. And he's, please, you may enter in. Proverbs 16, 14 says, in the light of a king's face, there is life. And so as she comes into that room and she sees a smile comes on his face as opposed to an angry face, I keep thinking of uh, Mr. Potato Head, the, the smile comes on his face there. Well, she knows in the light of his countenance, as his, his uh, facial expression brightened up, she's going to be safe. She's not going to be killed. In the light of a king's face, there is life. A truly good king, because of that kind of power, imagine having that kind of power. A truly good king and wise ruler is going to rec- recognize the immense power they have, and they're going to rule with humility. And so for those of us here that are in some kind of position of power, or maybe you long to be someday in some kind of position of authority, know that those who serve in those positions are to do so for the benefit of other people. You're to do so in humility so that others may be benefited and not for yourself to be benefited. And the Lord sees that. And he honors those who approach rule in such a way. Okay, amen? All right, well, that's enough about kings. Uh, Verse 16, it says, How much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. How much better to get wisdom than gold? How much better to get understanding than silver? Now, that's a recurring theme in the book of Proverbs. If you've been with us, you know it. Back in chapter 3, it said almost the same thing. Verse 14, chapter 8, said almost the same thing in verse 19. And this, remember, was written by a guy that possessed both wisest man that has ever lived on the earth and perhaps the wealthiest man that has ever lived on the earth at least as far as wealth in his days uh, rendering was concerned so he's a man who has great wealth and great wisdom and yet he will still say how much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen than silver notice what he does there in the verse though he adds that exclamation point i think that's significant and you should pay attention to that when you're studying he says how much better to get wisdom than gold exclamation point he's trying to emphasize the comparison he in reality is saying there they're beyond comparison there's no comparison between going after silver and gold and going after wisdom beyond comparison wisdom is far better Now, I think most people would doubt the veracity of that statement. I think many of us here would have our doubts about the reality of that statement. If I could have wisdom or I could have gold, which would I choose? I bet a lot of us would debate that in our mind if we uh, had the genie, so to speak, that was willing to give that to us here. Solomon says those two aren't even close. It shouldn't even be a debate in your mind. Now, riches can and often do disappear overnight. I think this last week, what did our stock market lose? Like 3,000 points uh, in a week or whatever. A lot of people's little bank account things, the little number that said, is how much you have in your bank account, changed a lot this last particular week. Overnight, or in this case, over a couple of nights, they could go. Riches can and often do disappear very quickly. Wisdom, however, remains through eternity. And so if my bank account was depleted, and I'm down to virtually nothing. If I'm a wise individual, that's never going anywhere. And certainly it's not going to go anywhere even into uh, eternity. Now think about the time you spend, the energy, the effort, time, money, effort, all those things in the acquisition of wealth. Just think about it. I mean, you go to school for it. You spend a lot of money so that you can go on and hopefully make more than you spent. 
You spend all this effort in studying in these kinds of things. You work hard. To, you put your, what do they say, your nose to the stone or something or something like that. Yeah, you do all these things because I want to succeed. I want to rise up. I want to get a bigger paycheck. You think about all the time and money and effort you spend on the acquisition of wealth. Just imagine if we as a society of people spent that kind of money on the acquisition of wisdom and growing in wisdom. What sort of an impact that would have on us as a people? And truly, we learned this back in chapter 4. We have to be a people that learn to value wisdom and pursue wisdom as if nothing else mattered. You remember back in Proverbs 4, it said, the beginning of wisdom is this, get it. That's the beginning of wisdom. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Whatever you do, get these things. That's how much valuable, that's how valuable it is, Solomon says, no comparison. Verse 17 says, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. The highway of the upright. The wise individual, that's again a person that's desired to walk with God and according to God's ways. The wise individual is going to make decisions in life that will cause them to avoid occasions to sin. The wise individual is going to make decisions in life that will cause them to avoid the occasions for sin. So if you have a problem with pornography, for instance, you are going to make decisions that will protect you from falling into pornography. You're going to take your computer and put it out in the main living room area. You're going to take your phone or your device and you're going to leave it outside of your bedroom at night. You're going to make decisions. And so then if that urge or that desire comes to it, you're going to have to get up out of bed. You're going to have to go out in the living room and all these things. And most of us are just too lazy to do it. And so you're going to, by making those decisions, you protect yourself by places you, I'm just not going there and it's not going to happen. Now, there will be instances where there's nothing you can do when you find yourself in the midst of something. But if we can limit those number of times, then we can limit the times we fall into sin or we willfully uh, disobey and go into sin. Does that make sense? So the highway of the upright turns aside from evil, doesn't even go down there. I shared the example with Brother Dan over here when we were down in New Orleans together. And I said, why don't we just, we're walking around, we have an evening off, let's just go down here, let's see this Bourbon Street thing that I hear about. And Dan is like, I ain't going down there. I'm not going down. Come on, we'll be fine. You can do whatever you want, but I'm staying right here. It was like he hit a wall. It was a wall of spiritual wisdom, if you will, and he wouldn't go past it. And I finally said, all right, I won't go either. This kind of thing. But if you want to keep yourself from sinning, then turn aside from evil. There's an old saying. It says this, keep thy way and God will keep thee. I think that's a good phrase to, to, uh, to memorize there. And honestly, in so many ways, it is that simple. Don't put yourself in situations that are going to cause you to sin as much as possible. Limit yourself to those things. Verse 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Many times you'll hear people quote this verse. Oftentimes they quote it wrong. I do uh, oftentimes. And they'll just say, Pride goes before a fall. That's not exactly what it says, but it's a general idea. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we've been looking a number of times in our study of Proverbs that the Lord stands opposed to the one that is proud. Conversely, he shows his grace to the one who walks in humility. That's what the Bible teaches. That's just the way it is. The Lord stands opposed to the one that is proud and he shows his grace to the person who walks in humility. James tells us that. It says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And pride is a sure precursor 
to a fall. As the example of scripture and the example of history tells us. It says people are lifted up in pride. In it, inevitably, you just kind of pull back and you just watch. And the fall, the, the bringing down a, a notch or two is going to happen in that particular person's life. Pride is a sure precursor of a fall. And proud people, arrogant people, sooner or later will suffer some humiliating experience which is designed to deflate their ego. It's just a matter of time. And whether that's because they're so proud they're no longer paying attention to detail to get to where they once were and to the accomplishments that they particularly have because they're just filled with themselves instead of really thinking it through, or it's because people are like, you know, I don't even like you anymore, and I don't want to help you anymore to get to where you want to go because you're obnoxious and annoying. Whatever it may be, however God causes it to happen, at some point in time, Pride, as the verse specifically says, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And so here we are. Either you can let God humble you or you can humble yourself before the Lord, which sounds less painful. The latter, certainly so. And so we want to be a people that walk in humility. Be careful with this. We deceive ourselves. We think we'll be all right. These rules apply to everybody else. They apply to you and me. And so if we lift ourselves up in pride, don't be surprised when we're brought down, we're humbled. And if you're a follower of Christ, that's for your good. It's really for everybody's good, but it's for your good. And the Lord knows that, and so he does that. Verse 19 says, and it's this theme here of a lowly spirit. He says, it's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Peter, in the New Testament, he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that that at the proper time he may uh, exalt you. And the promise of Scripture is that the humble is exalted in God's due time. And here, specifically, we see that it's better to be poor and humble than to be rich and proud. It's better to be poor and humble than to be rich and proud. Now, you can be poor and proud, And you can be rich and humble. But typically, it goes this way. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Do you believe that? Do you really? Kathy does, yeah, because she's awesome. But do you you really believe that? If you don't, then you want to ask the Lord to cause you to believe that, to change your heart. I'm sure you've all been where I've been, where I was totally convinced of something, And then God just changed my thinking. He changed my heart on that particular issue. And if this is one of those where you're thinking, no, I'd rather be rich and proud. I think I'll be all right. Let the Lord change your heart on that issue. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor. And the key thing is lowly spirit than to divide the spoil with the proud. All right, verse, uh, the next set of verses. Now, this set of verses also go together. And it's a short series of statements on the value of applied wisdom. So statements about the person that's walking in wisdom. Verses 20 to 24, I'll read it all together. It says, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise man makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. All of these statements about applied wisdom here, we'll look at them rather quickly as we move through. When wisdom is at the helm of a person's life, 
their behavior is going to reflect that. And if you look at that first verse, verse 20, it says, whoever gives thought to his word, that's wisdom, whoever gives thought to his word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So when a person proceeds carefully with the things they say and the things they do, they're protected from the consequences that find those that do not proceed carefully with the things they say and the things they do. When a person gives thought to the words they speak or pays attention to the words that other people speak to them, they'll find themselves in the path that God can bless because they're walking in the way of wisdom. And so the value of applied wisdom, the life that person makes, it'll be evident of the decisions that they make. Secondly, look at verse 21. It says, the wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So if a person is truly wise, people will take note. If you're truly wise, people will take note. And again, notice this. You don't need to run around and let everybody know. By the way, I'm truly wise. If you need anything, come see me. You don't have to run around and do it. People will know it. And they'll seek you out. And that's a mark of wisdom that you know you don't have to let everybody know. But a person that is truly wise, people are going to take note of that. Notice what it says there. It says the wise of heart is called discerning. Not the wise of heart calls himself discerning or, or things like that. People take note. And they refer to you as a discerning individual. People will acknowledge that. Additionally, notice the pleasantness of which they do speak, the pleasant manner. It speaks there of the sweetness of speech. So again, the wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Sweetness of speech. They don't need to scream. They don't need to yell. They don't need to draw attention to themselves or try and persuade people with their forcefulness. The, the wisdom of their words is going to cause people to seek them out, and the tenderness of their words is going to soften people's hearts to listen to them. And so no need, no need to browbeat other people here. Just simple speaking the truth and doing it in love. And the Lord uh, blesses that. Verse 22 says, Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. So that idea of good sense, that's wisdom. That's what we've been talking about. It's a continual source of life. A fountain is a continual source of water. It's a continual source of life to the one that possesses it. And to those that come near to the one who possesses it. So good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it and to those who come around him. But notice here, not the case of the fool. Even the fool, his instruction, it says, but the instruction of the fools is folly. Even their carefully planned out lesson plan, their instruction is foolishness. Complete opposite there of the one who's walking in wisdom. Verse 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Again, Solomon points out this characteristic of a wise individual speaking carefully, thinking about what it is they're going to say. You notice in here, in all of these comments about the applied wisdom, they all, almost all of them have to do with the words that come out of our mouths. And you, you see that again and again here. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. That means he or she carefully thinks through their words. And their track record of doing so causes people to stop and take notice. You know, if you really need some insight, go find so-and-so, right? Because they have a track record of speaking judiciously and persuasively. Now, notice all of that, it says it comes from where? You can see it in the beginning of the verse, verse 23, the heart. 
It comes from the person's heart. It's not their brain. It's not their advanced degrees or all these sorts of things. It's not their much learning, but it's the condition of the heart. And if their heart is in a good place, then the words that come forth are going to be helpful words for others. And that's why, again, we read that passage about guarding your heart. For from it, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. That's the key thing. Guard your heart. Verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Here he speaks of gracious words. Sweetness to the person hearing them. They're even sweet to you saying them but sweetness to the person hearing them. How a kind word can buoy a person's spirit. You just speaking a kind word into a person's life can encourage that person for the rest of their day and beyond. To be able to just say simply nice things is a simple way to benefit, of uh, benefiting that we can bring to another person in our day. Be nice to people. Uh, you can do that. That's easy. And just say kind things to people and you will encourage them. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Now, if you ever do need to say something or you need to deliver a hard message, then you need to do as the scripture says. You need to speak the truth, but you need to do it in love. And so sometimes we think it's either I can be kind or I can be truthful. That's not the case. You can be both. You can be truthful, but you can do so in a way of kindness and that the person is going to receive it uh, certainly much better if you do so. Uh, Barb, you wrote something in an email to me about honey or something like that. And she wasn't calling me honey. Uh, it was something like honey gets more flies than vinegar or something like that. I don't know what the phrase is, but you know how the idea is. You don't have to be fake. You can be honest. You can be truthful, but you can do so in a way that is kind. Amen? Verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, ooh, ooh, its end is the way of death. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what it says in Roman or excuse me in Proverbs 14:12. Word for word, exact same. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Solomon here he repeats that phrase. And in doing so, he adds emphasis to the danger of refusing the path of wisdom. The danger of going after self-chosen ways. Well, I'll figure it out. I'll deal with the consequences later. You know, I'll just use my head or I'll read the opinion polls as to the next thing that I should do, and so on. That's a mistake. It's a mistake. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. And the fact that he stresses it twice in a couple of chapters here, it reminds us of how diligent we need to be to be on guard against self-deception. To be on guard against self-deception. And so you say, well, I'm not one of those easily self-deceived. Yes, you are. That's an example of the fact that if you think you're not, you more than likely are, more than the person who knows that they are. And so we have to keep ourselves on guard against self-deception. And the reason is because there is always a way that seems right to an individual. But is it right? There's a way that seems right, but is it? And how would you even know? What if your way that seems right disagrees with my way that seems right? Who's right? And how are we to decide? I, I saw two minutes of this movie the other day. It came on the, the TV, and I'm just sort of watching it. And this father figure is talking to this little girl. And he's saying to her, it, you know, honey, it, it really doesn't matter. There's these questions out there. What's important is that you follow your heart, and you go the direction you feel it's leading you to go. And I'm thinking, that's child abuse, what you're saying to this child. 
Because that's going to lead this child to a place, if this, that child embraces that sort of thinking, that's dangerous. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And if our two ideas disagree with one another, there has to be a measure of truth. There has to be a standard that we come back to and say, okay, what's your way and what's your way? Which of those ways are right? Perhaps you're both off the mark. And that's the word of God. And the whole argument that Proverbs has been seeking to warn us about is the danger of establishing ourselves and our thinking as the way, as the standard. It's not the standard at all because we can deceive ourselves. There is a way that seems right and there is a way that is right. And we want to make sure as followers of God, looking to live our lives and walk in wisdom, that we're going to the right place to align our thinking correctly, which again is the word of God. Amen. Verse 26. That was a little amen. Uh, Amen? All right. Thank you. Verse 26, it says, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. That's an interesting proverb. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. If you are a worker and you don't have any cash, but you're working this particular job and you know at the end of the day, you'll get paid your cash and then you can go and get your dinner. Well, you're going to stay motivated to work for the rest of that day. Does that make sense? Your appetite drives you on. You leave early, you don't get paid no dinner that particular night. And so your appetite work uh, drives you on. Your belly urges you to continue to do so. That promise of a paycheck, it keeps you motivated. And it doesn't just have to be about food, certainly so. The worker's drive for anything spurs him forward. So your kid comes to you and says they want to get a new bike. You got money in the bank. You could just go out and get them a new bike if that's what you want to do. But if you're a wise parent, I would suggest to you, if you are a wise parent, you're going to say, great, there's a lot of sticks in the backyard that need to get picked up. And the neighbor's yard and the one next door, start banging on doors and asking uh, them to, get, to pay you to do that. You're a young couple and you want to get your first home. And so you, you sit down with your budget. Dave Ramsey, Kendra Lilly comes and she sits down with you and explains the Dame Ra- Dave Ramsey program to you. And you begin to scrimp, uh, skimp and save and you do all these things so that you could have money to go and buy that particular house. And so in that sense then, that desire, that appetite for that thing, whether it's food or a bike or a house, that appetite drives you. That's a blessing. That's from God. And so we want to be careful that we don't get in the way of what God wants to do by just making it very easy for individuals. We want that drive to push the person forward because you've heard it said that an item worked hard for is an item truly appreciated. Or the converse of that, an item hardly worked for is an item hardly appreciated. And often we see that to be the case. And so the person's drive, let the drive drive them forward to get what they're desiring. Moving on, verse 24, oh, excuse me, 27. Now 20 to 24 talked about applied wisdom, what a life is going to look like. 27 to 30 looks at a life of applied wickedness, so to speak, or foolishness, and what that life is going to look like. And there's going to be five different examples in these four or five verses. The first one is found in verse 27, where we'll read about a worthless man. In 28, a dishonest man. A tail-bearing man, that's also, that's a gossiper in verse 28. A violent man in 29, and then a scheming man in verse 30. So let me read those to you. It says, a worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. 
just like we saw with wisdom, almost every one of them dealt with the mouth and what you say and how you say it. Here now, it's so interesting, as you're looking at applied wickedness, almost every one of these deals with the mouth or the lips or the things that people are saying. And so let's take a look at them. The first one, the worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. The, the mouth, the tongue. James, again, James says this, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. It's the tongue. It comes back to that, and which obviously comes forth from the heart. Few things reveal more about a person than the things they speak and even how much they speak and the purposes for which they speak those particular things. Somebody has said this, that speech is a more perfect self-revelation even than act. The things people say as opposed to the things that they do. You can learn a lot about a person by what they allow to come out of their mouth. And so going back and looking at these, the first one, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. So here this worthless man doesn't just plot evil, but notice they go around seeking to spread evil, like the, the idea of the fire that scorches. So the worthless man doesn't just plot it, but wants to spread it. The dishonest man in verse 28, some of your versions might say the perverse man, that they twist their words, they're dishonest, they're twisting them, prompted by their wickedness. If you see there, it says they spread strife and they distort the truth. So they're a gossiper and they are a slanderer. And here he refers to that individual as a perverse individual. That's not what your tongue was created for. It's not what your mouth was created for. Notice it says that they spread strife. They leave in their wake tension and fighting and division. Now, most of us here, we are, you're not worthless, wicked individuals. Because you're seeking to know the Lord and walk in his ways and things like that. But notice here, because I think a lot of followers of Christ struggle with this. Gossiping, backbiting, slandering other people. And here what we see in this place and in other parts of the scripture, these are serious and destructive. Gossiping, backbiting, slandering other people are serious and destructive. They're not minor character flaws where people look at it and say, eh, I probably shouldn't do that. But they don't really give it much thought or attention. But here we see that they are divisive and destructive sins that the Bible says you have to put out of your lives. If you want to walk with the Lord, you have to put that out of your life. I want to draw your attention to this. This is found in the book of Romans. Paul there in Romans, he's making an argument for how desperate man is for salvation. He's building up as he's going through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he starts in chapter 1 to show the desperate desperation uh, of the Gentile individual that does not know God. And he lists there a number of sins as an example of that to illustrate just the dire circumstance that man is in. Let me read it to you. It says this, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God, they're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Okay, I hear you. But isn't it interesting that in that list, the same list as murder, you have there gossip and slander. Now, if any of us here had a murder problem, I got a murder problem. I just, every now and again, you know, I, I do it. If any of us here had a murder problem, I would certainly hope you would commit yourself to stopping that problem. And if you don't, the law enforcement officials of our society will. 
Well, it's with the same intensity then. If you have a gossip problem or a slanderer problem, slander problem, you should deal with it with the exact same intensity. It wouldn't make sense not to because they're both in the same list of the horrible condition that man is in. And so if you've got a murder problem, deal with it. If you have a gossip problem, deal with it. It's not a minor character flaw. It's a serious sin which leads strife and division in its wake. Amen, friends? Let's go on to verse 29. It says, A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. A man of violence. Now, there's a number of ways that that phrase, a man of violence, or that word violence, is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament. Same word, translated different ways. Most of the time, it's translated violent. Sometimes it's translated as cruel, four times. Unjust, a few times there. And given to oppression. And so it's a term which could take on a whole host of meetings there besides just being physically violent. It could be cruel. It could be unjust. It could be given to oppression. And a man of violence, a man that is given over, woman given over to those things, seeks, as you see there, to entice others to join with them in their sin. And so it says, a man of violence entices his neighbor. Desires for them to be as cruel as he or she is. Desires for them to oppress other people or to treat people in an unjust manner. And they will tempt others. And perhaps it's because they just think their way is the best way. Maybe it's if I can get other people involved, then I won't feel as guilty as I do about what I'm doing. Everybody is doing it. Either way, sadly, notice the path that they are going does not lead anywhere good. And so it says, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And so the word of wisdom then for you and I is that we take care not to be so easily persuaded. Because here is this individual that is going to set out to entice us, to allure us, to draw us in. And that could be a person, it could be TV, it could be the stuff that we're reading, the popular media or whatever it may be, but drawing to us, coming to us and trying to entice us in. And I'll tell you this, their words are going to be convincing. There's going to be an aspect of what you hear from them that resonates with your heart and your heart says, yeah, that makes sense. They're enticing you. They're alluring you. There's going to be an aspect that appeals to you. Their way is going to seem right to you. To go back to an earlier verse in Proverbs, but we know that the end thereof is death, as the scripture says. Therefore, before you and I make any kind of decision to follow after another person or their particular ways, we first have to take the time to see if the Lord is in that. And if the Lord is moving in that particular direction, not to do so is foolishness because the violent man, the cruel man, the unjust individual is seeking to entice us and draw us in and it leads nowhere good. Verse 30 says this, whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. Oh boy, He he who purses his lips brings evil to pass. This is the final verse of this section. We'll end with this today as well, so we won't get as far as we would have hoped. But here it talks about winks his eyes. That's the idea of devising some kind of a scheme. And typically with another person here, you know, you give the wink and they got the wink and the head nod and everyone knows what is going on here. Now the pursed lips, some of your versions will say compressed lips. That's the idea of sort of a determined decision. So you you sort of grit your teeth and you decide, I am moving forward in this particular thing. So here's the guy scheming with you, it it seems like, and you're winking eyes at one another, and then the other person is saying, "Mm -hmm, we're going to do it, and the lips become pursed, and they're determined to carry it out, the plans. Regardless of the circumstances, 
regardless of conviction that says, no, don't do it, it's a bad idea, you've already determined you're going to move ahead here. And that foolishness stems from a hard heart, but I think even more dangerous, a hardening heart. As this person says, look, I don't really care what the consequences are going to be or how guilty I feel, convicted I feel about it, I'm doing it. And that's the complete opposite of the person that is seeking to walk in wisdom. That's a person that is bringing those things to the Lord, submitting them to the Lord, and saying, Lord, which way would you have me to go? And let me just end with this. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Amen, friends? Amen. Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, we know we covered a lot of ground and a lot of different things this morning and seemingly moved from topic to topic. And so... Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would take the, the many different things and the ideas that were put forward in your word and you would cause what needs to be, what needs to resonate in our hearts to resonate within our hearts. Father, we thank you that the word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and, and anyone that comes to it with a heart open to receive is going to receive from it and we pray that you would do that within each one of us. And we pray our prayer in Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.